All right, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Before we get into the second part, which is the practicality and how we could really navigate through all of this stuff that I'm talking about, I wanted to mention a couple of things about um, how our gender plays a role in our relationship with God and with one another. Okay, so for starters, we know that when God created Adam and Eve, He created Eve out of Adam's side, right? And the fathers unanimously agree that this has a spiritual implication, that it wasn't from his top or it wasn't from his bottom, to say that she's not superior or inferior. So there's a sense of equality right there, okay? Despite the gender differentiation, that they are different, um, they are equal. They have the same human nature. And again, that's why when Christ was incarnate, he saved both man and woman, male and female, because he assumed a human nature. It's not that his soul was gender-specific, even though he was incarnate as a man. Okay, so he was a man, so that's important to recognize, and we'll talk about what that implies as well. But for us, uh, we have this sense of equality as we navigate through life in a gender-specific way. Okay, that doesn't mean that we reduce that to, to a stereotype. But the way we are predisposed to, to live is different. It's according to our nature. Right? So that doesn't mean when it comes to virtues, there are masculine or feminine virtues. But the way we arrive at virtues is through the mode of our male gender or female gender. That makes sense? It's the mode of existence to which we arrive at sanctity. So Father Thomas Hopkins says, I'd insist that when it comes to sanctity and holiness, there's no difference whatsoever. And that's rooted in another absolute dogma that there's only one human nature, which women and men share identically. There's not a feminine nature and a masculine nature, but the human hypostasizes in a very particular person who's either a man or a woman, and therefore, how the virtue lives itself out will be gender-specific. You with me? So, uh, how I arrive at obedience as a male is specific to me, whereas how a woman arrives at obedience as a female is specific to her. Right? Not that obedience is either a male or a female virtue. Right? Now, we share a common um, relationship to God, whether men or women. And uh, C.S. Lewis actually puts it in a beautiful way. He says, with regard to God, we're all female. Okay? Because he's our bridegroom. Right? We are his bride. And you know, meditating on this, I, I guess we could also say that we're all sons. We're all male in the sense that we are co-inheritors with Christ that we share in the inheritance with Christ as the firstborn son. So we are sons in that sense as well. So we are all sons in that regard. So we share this common nature in regard to our relationship with God. So and then just as we reflect the image of God, and we have that bond, we have a very specific mode of existence as male or female to relate to our relationship with God. Okay, so Father Tom continues to say how the mode of existence is expressed through each person of the Trinity is radically different. Right? The, the nature of God is the same. There's equality between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But how the person of the Father or the Son or the Spirit expresses that existence is different, even though they share the exact same nature. He continues to say, Likewise, we all have the same nature and we all have the same potential to reach perfection in Christ, but how that's fulfilled must take into account or into consideration our specific gender. Okay? And so God reveals to us from His nature what it means to be human. And there are illustrations that relate to masculinity and femininity. And we see that in God, symbolism that reveal that to us as well. Okay, for example, 
Um, we see the paternal symbolism in God whenever St. Gregory the Theologian says of Christ, as a good father, you have labored with me, I who had fallen. So there's this illustration of fatherhood about God. And we see this in a maternal sense as well, in which the maternity is expressed to us as well. For example, whenever Christ says, how I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. So Christ identifies as a hen, not a rooster, (laughs) but a hen. Why? Because there's a symbolism behind that, that he wants to illustrate. Okay? Father Tom continues to say, Clearly applied to the person of the Trinity and to the divinity as such are certain physical and spiritual properties and actions, which are undeniably feminine and maternal, connected with birth and nurture. And the Bible, the liturgy, speak metaphorically of God's womb, God's breasts, and attribute images and activities of birth, nurture, feeding, brooding, and cuddling to the divine persons. Okay? So it doesn't mean that there's literally some sort of masculinity or femininity in God. And and that's what Father Tom also stresses several times. But we see that this is what God illustrates for us. So we don't project our idea of what it is to be feminine or masculine onto God, but from what God reveals to us, we derive our understanding of what it means to be masculine and feminine. You with me? And in a sense, we see that modeled in the most obvious way in the person of Christ and in the person of Saint Mary. Right? So, he says, Jesus is the example for us all. But there's a sense in which Jesus, as husband, as bridegroom, as male, is a special example for male human beings and And so also Mary, as the image of human perfection for everybody, the merely human, is also in some way an image for women. Because she lived out her faith as a woman. And also particularly, and our church hymnology is filled with this, she's the example of motherhood, what it means to be a mother. So, in a sense, we can't really learn what it is to be a man from Mary, just as we can't learn what it is to be a woman from Christ. And that's why that paragon of a mother is in Mary, the paragon of a male, is what Christ reveals to us about God. All right? So we're going to apply this to the way that we live our life now and, and how this is expressed in our community, not just like in marriages, but in our friendships, not just in the church, but with everybody, and how that looks practically. Right? So, like we talked about this natural order, now we want to talk about how we can navigate through the mess that we have, because we live in a fallen world. Right? We live in a fallen condition. We don't live in paradise. And that's why we pray in Psalm 15, Iniquities I was conceived and in sins my mother bore me. So we're all culpable for the tragic condition of the world. We're all sinful. We're all fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why as we talk about the practical implications of how we should navigate through this whole topic, we can't compare culpability. We can't say, oh, he has this sin, oh, he, he has that sin, and she has this, and no, oh, I don't have that. And then we play this comparison game. Right? We're all culpable in our own ways. And as different as sins may be, they all lead to separation from God. Okay? So in 1 John 5, 16, 17, St. John says, If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he'll give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I don't say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So you see, he draws the comparison. There's a distinction. Every sin has different consequences. right? And we don't know on the surface. We don't know anything on the surface. Some sins just seem worse because of the social stigma. Right? Like, 
I've seen so many people just get disgusted by seeing two guys together, but if a guy and a girl aren't married and they're not living in purity, much less people are disgusted by it. There's a social stigma, like, why is one sin any different in God's eyes? And sexual sin can exist in a heterosexual relationship, even within a marital relationship, just as much in a homosexual relationship. Right? So it's important for us to recognize our place in this whole situation, that I'm not God and you're not God. Right? That's so critical for us to really understand. And that's why Christ condemned hypocrisy and pride more than anything else. Right? So if we're really to put a sin on a pedestal, it would be that, not whatever sexual perversion we see. So when we take that into consideration, we recognize that we're just born into the world with a certain package, good and bad. Okay? And I'm not necessarily rewarded for the good, and I'm not necessarily condemned for the bad. That's just the cards that I've been dealt. And St. John Chrysostom makes this a very clear case where somebody who's just patient because they were raised in a peaceful, quiet, nice family. There's no crown for that. But show me a patient person who was abused. Show me a patient person who had two parents that always bicker at each other. There's a crown. Right? And so we, we can't even judge vice or virtue because if it looks exactly the same, we don't know the effort that it required for it to reach. You with me? Like we don't know if like 10 ounces of wisdom here measure up to 10 ounces of wisdom here. Because maybe this person had to work 10 times harder for those 10 ounces, right? I'm putting units on virtue. Anyways, whenever the disciples saw the man born blind in John chapter 10, they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And he told them, that's not what this is about. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And of course he didn't mean that literally. We really think his parents were sinless? Like, right? Or, or that he, as a blind man, was also sinless? Of course not. But he's trying to direct their attention to what really matters for this man. What really matters here is that God is glorified through his condition. And that's what you have to really think about. And that's our role as we walk through this tragic world of uh, evil and deceptions and you name it, right? Our role is to bring light, to give eyes to the blind, and to glorify God by being an extension of His healing power and His healing grace. Okay? And we do that by love. We do that by presenting Christ. A lot of times when we see uh, all of the issues around us, and I'll be the first to admit, like, I get depressed. It just it consumes me. I focus on it. But I have to remind myself that that's not going to fix anything. St. Porphyria says, Do not fight to expel the darkness from the chamber of your soul. Instead, open a tiny aperture for light to enter, and the darkness will disappear. You can't fight darkness with darkness. And if you focus on it, the situation doesn't get any better. So instead of focusing on all of the hatred and evil in the world, we need to focus on love. Instead of focusing on all of the deceptions and the lies in the world, we need to focus on the truth. And that's why I didn't go through my exhaustive list of issues at the introduction of this talk, because that's not what I wanted to focus on. I just wanted you to recognize the relevance of the situation. right? If we want to change the world, there's only one way. Okay? And that's for the light of Christ to enter the world. And it's not going to enter the world except through a personal testimony. 
Okay, so there is an Anglican bishop in, in the crypt in Westminster Abbey. It's in the 11th century. And uh, this was what was written on his tombstone. He says, When I was young and free and my imagination had no limits, I dreamed of changing the world. As I grew older and wiser, I discovered that the world wouldn't change. So I shortened my sights somewhat and decided to change only my country. But it too seemed immovable. As I grew into adulthood, on one last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family, those closest to me. But alas, they would have none of it. And now, as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realize, if I had only changed myself first, then, by example, I would have changed my family. From their inspiration and encouragement, I would have been able to better my country, and who knows, I may have even changed the world. That's the heart of the matter. It's our own transformation. For us to be a model of love and truth. For us to walk through life with such wisdom that we know how to reconcile that and to balance it and to navigate through all of these sensitive, tricky situations. Remember in the life of St. Pope Krullus, after his departure, they went in his room and they collected some of the letters that he had in his room. And he got thousands of letters, good ones, bad ones, and everything in between. The only ones that he kept in his room were the criticism, the letters of insults. Why? Because he took that to heart. So he said, that this is what I need to work on. I don't need the praise. I need to work on repenting. I need to be a better light. And that's why he changed Egypt. He changed the world. Okay, so if we do that, our families change, our communities change, right? And that's why, like Father Thomas Hopko says, saints come in clusters. We all know that. Saints come in clusters. He says, you cannot find wholesome, healthy male saints who are deprived of positive, wholesome, holy relationships with women. They do not exist. They do not exist. End quote. So we need to start with ourselves, build a healthy relationship with each other and the church, and then the women can elevate the men, the men can elevate the women, and that's what the community should look like. Okay? Despite our brokenness, despite all of the issues that we deal with. And what's so tragic now is that we lost this concept of community in the sacrament of confession. Because remember, confession was a public sacrament. And so what would happen whenever I'm confessing my sins and you're listening and you're confessing your sins and I'm listening? People think, oh, everybody was probably judging the exact opposite. Actually, prayers for the congregation as an individual is confessing their brokenness so that, in a sense, we're identifying with each other, we're leaning on each other, we're recognizing our common fight to live a pure, holy, righteous life. Now, whenever I fall, I don't think of what that does to my church. When you fall, you don't think of how much you affect me. Maybe you just look at some porn in your room. Like, who's that going to affect? The whole world. That's the reality. Okay? And apply that to every sin. I'm just using a sexual example because of, well, the topic. But <laughs> So, baptism was the exact same way. It's a shame how baptisms are now just nothing more than a private event. It kills me, and that's why I, I always stress this. Someone's getting baptized, this is a member of your family. The whole church is here. Because you're going to be responsible for modeling Christ to that member, and that member is going to be responsible for representing Christ to you. He's going to be held accountable to that model. So baptism never happened in a private setting in the early church. So we need to recognize that accountability and, and to share that sense of responsibility within the whole community. Dr. Philip Mamalaka says, when we're preoccupied with our own repentance, and the more we're aware of our own need for God's healing in our lives, the less capable we are of judging other people. 
Our own journey of repentance frees us up to see ourselves in the other and to free us up to love the other no matter what they think or believe. And so, one comment here is we confront our brokenness and we face the, the reality of our own personal human condition. When we see that darkness inside, when we see those sins, that's not what defines us. Okay? Father Tom says, The tragic truth, however, is that countless people, especially in contemporary secularized societies, have become convinced that their sinful thoughts and feelings define who they are in their essential being in life. So, so often in this uh, process of self-reflection, we see these sins and we think, well, I'm nothing more than that. I, I have some um, judgmental thoughts. I'm nothing more than a hypocrite. Or I have some lustful thoughts. I'm nothing more than a pervert. Oh, you name it. That's not the reality. That's only a reality if I embrace the sin. So long as I'm struggling, then my God will always be bigger than the sin. Okay? The only time I let the sin have the upper hand and to really define me is whenever I consent to it and I embrace it. Okay? And that's why we need to allow God to love us according to His will. And allow Him to gaze at us with His loving eyes and to see ourselves through His eyes. Okay? That requires a lot of work. For us to see ourselves, not through our own eyes. Because this is a radical idea for our society because we live in the sense of autonomy. I get to decide who I am. Right? But God defines my value and my worth and so on. So now... Before we get into how we could really be a healing presence for others, I want to just pause to clarify the reality of some of these issues like same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria and so on. Because we really need to understand what these issues are about before we even talk about them. Both of these come from a real place. Like for a man to be attracted to another man, it's not this delusion. It's not like a fabricated feeling. Okay? And even for a man to identify as a woman, if that's how the person identifies, this isn't like a feeling the person is inventing. That's really how they feel okay and for a person with same-sex attraction they really are attracted to the person of the same sex the only difference is with gender dysphoria is that as real as this feeling is it's not a reflection of their true identity and the best example of that is just anorexia like a hundred pound girl that feels fat. She really does feel that way. You can't argue with that. And we have no business saying, oh, you're crazy. It's not. That's really how the person identifies. But it's not the actual reality of her condition. You with me? For same-sex attraction, it's real and it's true. The person feels attracted to the same sex and he really is attracted to the same sex, and that's an actual reality in his life. Okay, there's nothing delusional about that. So, before we start overreacting and we start just responding to all of this talk about, oh, this is awful, this is evil, we gotta understand that it comes from a real place. And we understand that it's so much easier to be compassionate. Right? And we should be just as compassionate if it's real or fake or delusional, somebody's pretending. I'm sure there's people that just want to experiment. Tons of people want to just experiment. It's not coming from a real place. It's no excuse for us to be any less compassionate. Okay? And so, this is the best way I like to think of it. Let's say a woman gets pregnant and she's doing heroin. Whenever she has this child... 
physiologically, this child is going to have a heroin dependency. If you don't give this baby heroin, most likely the baby will die from withdrawal. You just cut him out cold turkey. Any of the doctors here, feel free to correct me if I'm out of place. So that's the reality. But nobody in their right mind will say, hey, that's their condition. Let's just keep them on heroin for life. Let's support it. Let's endorse it. That's really how they're born. That's who they are. They're not pretending to need heroin. It's real. So let them live that way. Whenever we look at any sin in our life, you can relate it to the same way. We have certain proclivities to sins like anger. Somebody can just be born with a short fuse. No Christian would say, hey, just live bitter your whole life. It's cool. <laughs> right? But we also can't say, hey, that's your fault. Fix yourself. What's wrong with you? Just stop being angry. See what I mean? That language is the worst. The moment we start saying, you need to fix this. You need to be like... And most people are already struggling and conflicted as it is. So it doesn't help. So, so it starts with a proper understanding to embrace and to say, look, this is not the natural order. That's why the first part of this whole series, I talked to you about the way God designed humanity. Right? But now we got to recognize that we live in a fallen world and things are not the way they're intended to be. And we got to reconcile that. We have to come to terms with that with love and to just be a healing presence, to be a presence of love and grace, to, to do that with truth, never to compromise the truth, but to recognize that these are struggles coming from a real place. The best example is how Christ encountered the Samaritan woman, which we just read today. And so, she had issues, <laughs> a lot of issues. And she even identified with those issues. The moment he started talking to her, she started to play this group identity where like, oh, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew, we don't talk. And so she diminished her humanity to nothing more than a group. She didn't recognize herself as a real person. Okay? But Christ didn't let her do that. He saw through this attempt to reduce herself to a group identity. He saw the person, not a member of the Samaritan group. He saw a person. Okay? Father Patrick Reardon says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? So she thought this is unusual. Gradually, this is a question about social identity. Because it's definitely identity politics in the beginning, isn't it? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. That's called identity politics. Individuality is gone. The person is gone. You belong to a group. You're one of them. But Jesus directs the question to his own identity. The talk turns religious. Jesus speaks about living water, and then the talk gets truly serious. If we just consider people as nothing more than a member of a group, like we reduce them to that group, we'll never walk through life as true Christians. Because Christ saw the individual, he saw the person, and everyone he encountered. That's why I hate identity politics. People think that it's just like a matter of expressing my political views. No, it's not. Whether you're a conservative or a liberal, if you do it, it's not Christian. The, the individual is the ultimate sovereign figure. He is in the image and likeness of God, and you can't reduce him to a group. And so he encountered her with no presuppositions about her. He didn't say, oh, I know you Samaritans. Let me tell you what, what people like you do. See? <laughs> he didn't do that. No presuppositions at all. And we really have to apply that. Because it's easy to look at what radical activists are doing and to say, oh, I know what you guys do. Like, look at the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s, how we understood homosexuality or any sort of trans identity. 
And so we take that as like, oh, that's a perversion and you must be that. Or uh, you identify as a homosexual person, you must have been abused. You must have been that. It's not the case. Every person is unique. There's one woman from the Orthodox Church who identifies as a lesbian, and she said this. Please understand that the nature of same-sex attraction is complex. And since the issue is so highly publicized and politicized these days, you know, of course, all Orthodox Christians want and maybe need to take positions to clarify and to hold the line on what they believe is the moral and godly standard. But unfortunately, my experience, at least, is in that in focusing on this, Christians can forget that at the end of the day, it's not really an issue at the heart. It's about ordinary human beings, just like themselves. Everybody's experience is unique, and it's sometimes easier to lump people into categories and labels, believe that political and social activists speak for everybody, and then you lump us all into a community that not everybody necessarily cares to be a part of. And the Orthodox Church, I believe, needs to be our true alternative for community. And it's hard to lay aside partiality. I have problems with it myself, to lay it aside and to be open, to listen, to receive, to care for each person that comes your way. And I think that personal care is where the church has always insisted that we spend the bulk of our energy. And so we must identify with the person who is struggling, to see them as a unique individual and to relate to their struggles. To say, like, I'm, I'm not just trying to understand where you are, but I'm trying to actually stand where you are. I'm trying to give you a shoulder to lean. I'm trying to carry that cross that you're carrying with you. Henry Nolan says, compassion means to become close to someone who suffers. But we can come close to another person only when we're willing to become vulnerable ourselves. A compassionate person says, I am your brother, I am your sister, I am a human, fragile, mortal, just like you. I'm not scandalized by your tears, nor afraid of your pain. I too have wept, I too have felt pain. We can be with the other only when the other ceases to be the other and becomes like us. How many times do we think like, oh, those are the other guys. Those are the other people. Those guys over there. Those people over there. It's what destroys Christianity. And, you know, people out in the world have nothing against it whenever they see a lack of love from secular institutions. But whenever there's a lack of love from the church, well, that just hits differently because you're representing Christ. So we can't stereotype or make presuppositions about anyone. Thomas Hopko says, Christian counselors must abandon all stereotyping of people with same-sex attractions. They must see each person as the unique person he or she is, each with his own or her own unique inheritance and history. They must recognize the indescribable complexity of the issue of sexuality, generally same-sex attraction in particular, however certain speakers and writers may be in their opinion on the subject. They must resist every temptation to oversimplify. They must dread being overly confident in their evaluations. They must discard all anecdotal materials and all textbook theories on the subject, while being as much aware of them all at the same time. And so, whenever you encounter someone who is struggling, everything you know about the issue goes out the window. (laughs) I mean, you keep it in the back of your mind, but now you're just dealing with a person. You're not dealing with descriptions about an issue that you read in a textbook or heard in a sermon. You see what I mean? So that's what matters. I remember I went to meet someone who was struggling with this issue, and um, it was a while ago. He really didn't know me, but he knew that everybody was aware of what he's going through, okay? So I reached out, spent some time together, went to get coffee, then we went to lunch, I went to the park, just 
wanted to get to know the person and to learn about his hobbies, his interests, and I learned about anime, and I still don't even know what it really is, but <laughs> like all this stuff, right? And then at the end of the day, like after hours and hours, um, we finally like uh, start to walk back to the car to, to leave, and I can tell that this person is kind of like fidgeting and like he's restless. He's like, everything okay? It's like, yeah, but like, you know, you didn't talk to me about the thing. So I'm like, what thing? He's <laughs> like, you know, the thing. <laughs> like, no, I really don't know. I don't know anything about you. I don't just take people's word about, I don't know, I, I barely even know your interests, let alone who you really are. And because he recognized like that sense of real compassion, that there was no preconceived notions, it came from himself to say, can I actually talk to you about this? I'm all ears. That's the model. Not because I did anything special. That's the bare minimum of what we should do as Christians. To just love. To go, hey, I want to get to know you. We could talk about issues. And if he had asked me, hey, is homosexuality wrong? I'll tell him, like, look, you don't even need me to tell you it's wrong. I did this segment on Logos. Logos TV. And yes, it was in Arabic. <laughs> Not once did I say homosexuality is wrong. I'm, I'm a priest sitting in an Orthodox channel. Like, everybody knows what I speak for. I had like, like three tons call me, yelling at me, like, how could you say that this... I'm like, well, I didn't say anything. I just said we, we have to love and care and embrace. And like... Yeah, but where's the, but it's wrong? <laughs> Why do I have to say, but it's wrong? Like, I'm a priest wearing black with a cross on. Everything about me says, but it's wrong. I don't need to put it in your face. <laughs> so, our presence alone should convict the world of truth. You know what people would say when they were around Pope Carolus? They would feel scared. If you like, people he say he, he could see through my soul, like he saw every sin in my heart. Talk to people that actually were in his presence, they'll tell you. Because of his sanctity, he didn't need to tell you that what you're doing is out of line. People just seem like, oh shoot, I can't do this. I, I can't continue living this way. Because of his own sanctity, when we live in the truth, when we abide in the truth, then our own existence serves as a conviction to the world without having to say a word and without having to look like a priest either. <laughs> and I remember I just playing basketball one time with a couple of guys and um, we had the gym for a couple of hours and I came like an hour later. As soon as I walked in, I was like, Oh shoot, keys here, we can't cuss anymore. I'm like, you can do whatever you want, but like, I didn't need to say don't cuss. So the way we communicate to the world is by our life, by our model. We show love, we show truth, and if somebody wants to talk about it, but it really comes down to this, because people will come and tell you, yeah, but I love him. If another man wants to be in a homosexual relationship. But I love him. Okay, we can talk about that. You know, we can talk about all of the intricacies of it. But my objective isn't to just beat you over the head with the truth. And I'm so glad. Like, we not only celebrated St. Fotini, who is the Samaritan woman today, but St. Athanasius as well. And his life was all about the truth. When they said the world is against, he said, and I'm against the world. The world is against every Christian. If the world isn't against you, you're doing something wrong in your Christian walk. Like, then you're, that just means you're going with the world. So, of course, no one's going to be against you. If, you. if you don't see Satan head on, he's probably just walking with you by your side. 
So we have to be like St. Athanasius in that sense as well, to say, hey, this is what I believe. I don't need to post about it. I don't need to put it in your face. But this is the solid ground that I stand on. This is the way to love, and nothing you can do will shake that. This is the way to stand on truth, and nothing you can say will shake that. This is what it means to be in Christ, and nothing you can say or do will shake that. And the more we keep our children and we ourselves abiding in the truth, which is what this topic is all about, then we can navigate through life with wisdom. So let me just conclude with a couple of thoughts, and maybe I can get to the other stuff in the Q&A. I'll give you a very simple example. I visited someone's house, and the one I walked in, this four-year-old kid just ran to me asking to confess. I'm like, man, he must have done something wrong. <laughs> but the kid was excited, okay? Um, let's, let's call him Frank, okay? Frank was excited. And so I said, well, Frank, it's like, you know, you're still young. And during my pastoral ministry and my theology program, like, it was a hardcore rule. You don't take confessions from children under, like, eight years old at, at the earliest. Because they're innocent. You don't want to really corrupt their mind thinking about all their sins and stuff. So I said, well, I, I, I guess he's really enthusiastic about it. Okay, tell me, tell me. What, and he said, I, I want to tell you something. I was like, okay, tell me. And then, um, you know, his parents came and helped him say whatever he wanted to say. You know, like, I, I, I wasn't nice to my brother, whatever, right? And then it was cute. I prayed. I said, like, you know, after the absolution, you're brand new, you're clean. Okay, and that was it. As I was leaving, I asked the parents, like, where the heck did this come from? <laughs> like, did you do something wrong? Like, you told him to go confess? We're like, like no. I, it's just that um, every now and then when I walk out of the house and Frank asks me where I'm going, I tell him I'm going to confess. And yeah, well, what's confession? Well, it's when I just tell Abuna what I did wrong, and then I have a new heart and a new start, and God forgives all my sins. Really? Yeah. I want to do that too. <laughs> and ever since, he's been aching for Abuna to come to the house so that Frank can confess. <laughs> I want to highlight a couple of like, significant lessons from this. You can't change the ideologies in the world, but you can set such a powerful example in your home that it opposes all of the lies and the deceptions in the world. And it starts with the model of the parents. And then that's why like, all these attempts to deconstruct the family is a theological problem. Because the family is like the micro-church. The whole church is composed of many churches, families. And so what the parents do in their model, in their life, so many parents come and tell me, Abuna, I want my kid to confess. And I'm always tempted to say, like, like somebody confesses with me. Like, I haven't seen you in like two years. <laughs> Like, did you switch father's confession? Well, if you did, uh, that's cool, it's great, as long as somebody's taking care of you. <laughs> right? But I think we have to realize the impact of our example. And then what we have to do is connect our children to our elders. Not necessarily me, but the servants. Because the church is the pillar of truth. This is where we come to experience the truth. So we have to connect the children to these role models. And I remember vividly, like whenever I was, maybe even like nine, the first year I moved from, from Egypt when I was in Pittsburgh. I was nine years old, sitting next to one of the servants who was like, maybe in his late teens. And we're talking about some bombing that happened in Egypt. And th this servant was just like, oh, I wish I was there. 
out of love to give my life to Christ. I still remember that moment until today. I walked out of that liturgy like filled with courage. He just said something, even recognized. And his name is John Paul. Maybe you listen to this recording. Thank you. <laughs> but we do that without even knowing it. And, and you can't give people lessons. You yourself are a walking lesson. Like Pope Shunda would say, we have to be walking gospels. Right? So we do that, and we connect our children to the gospels that are embodied in the servants here. The spirit of discipleship is on life support in the Orthodox Church. It's so tragic. Like, we just go off and do our own thing. Like, from Pope Krolos, there was Pope Shenouda, and then our very own Metropolitan Serapion, discipled, discipled, discipled. They could always trace it back. That's the Orthodox Church, a life of discipleship. So we need to revive that. And we need to do that within the liturgy, not just within the church, like we, we come and hang out at the church and we do this in the church, but I'm talking specifically about the liturgy. <clears throat> and so I'll just leave you with this example because I'm already a couple of minutes over my time in this segment. But just yesterday, I was praying liturgy with three priests and one of the priests, Abuna Jonah, has two little boys. I've seen a lot of rowdy boys in my life, but like I almost lost a kneecap during liturgy. <laughs> and so, like as a priest, you know, we take turns going up to the altar and praying. Abuna Jonah is taking care of these two little boys. They're four or five years old, and. Uh, I mean, there's no way this guy can like focus on a single word of prayer. All right? To the point that when it came for his turn to go through the rotation, he, was, he went to Abuna Antonius. He was like, stay, stay at the altar. I, I got to take care of these kids. So he didn't even go up to pray. As a priest, he was just standing at the side of the altar taking care of the kids. After the liturgy, I told him, the sacrifice you gave to God in just caring for these two sweet little boys <laughs> was the greatest offering I can imagine. I'm not one to compare who offered more, but that should look like a lot to offer. What we offer to God in connecting our children to the Eucharist Simply just by babysitting them for two and a half hours is critical. I can't tell you anything more critical for preserving the integrity of, of our children. And Abuna Jonah was there from before the liturgy started. Almost three hours just babysitting. And it wasn't just like, oh, I'm a priest. I get to stand at the altar and pray and do my thing and everybody else. So... I think this, this is what matters in, in order to, to really foster the love and the care because we could talk about love, we could talk about truth, but unless it's experienced in the church, it's nothing more than just academic lessons. We have to experience it by growing in the church, by really developing roots in the church. And then we could see it modeled out in the world. And... I guess maybe I'll conclude with one more story, even though I said that would be the last. But you remember the story of uh, the drunk monk with St. Paisios. And this is a beautiful story because this really defied all odds. But there was a monk in the monastery who would drink, and, and he would walk around drunk every day. It was a scandal to monasticism. Just like if you were to see someone walking in, dressing inappropriately, somebody that's shouting, somebody literally just drinking beer, getting drunk out in the church. It's a scandal. And not only for a regular person, but a monk. Okay? Imagine me coming to liturgy drunk. <laughs> okay, you would call Sayyidina, Sayyidina, this is a problem. Like... You know, it's going to scandalize the church. So this is how everybody felt about this monk. 
And Saint Pisa just continued to love and support and love and support. Finally, this drunk monk passed away. And uh, Saint Paisas would live a little bit far from the main grounds of the monastery. And as soon as he saw them, he's like, yeah, I know. I saw his soul depart. Wait, what? How do you know he departed? I saw the angels come and take his soul. The angels? Are we talking about the same guy? <laughs> the drunk monk that scandalized the entire monastery? Let me tell you about this monk that you think you have all wrapped up. So, this particular monk was born in Asia Minor, and shortly before the destruction by the Turks, when they would gather all of the boys, his parents would go to work, and because they wanted to keep this boy, this little baby, alive, and prevent him from making noise so that the Turks wouldn't take him and abduct their child, they would give him some alcohol just so he wouldn't cry. Otherwise, they kidnap your child, they kill him, they put him to work, child abuse, game over. So just give him some alcohol, keep him quiet. I don't want anybody to get any ideas, by the way. (laughs) 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 And so he was raised this way. And then he had this proclivity to drinking that he couldn't control. It was like wired in his DNA. He was like born with an alcohol addiction. And so when he entered this monastery, precisely for the purpose of repenting from this sin, what he was telling the disciples that went to see him, that he started by having 20 drinks a day. He said by the time that he died, he was down to having just like a handful of drinks, maybe three or four drinks a day. Enough for him to still walk around drunk. But you think anybody noticed what was happening interiorly? Nobody had a clue. He was living in virtue. This man was living like a saint. He was striving. He was repenting. He was trying to restore his image and his likeness. And he did that just by the support and love of an elder. He didn't need to tell him drinking is wrong. Now if you have a monk coming in and telling him, I think this is fine and I'm going to just continue to do it, you have a different issue. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about how to love, how to support, and how to look at life with grace. To recognize the intricacies of our human condition without judging, without any preconceived notions or presuppositions, but just to love like Christ, to abide in the truth and to love like Christ. Unto him is due all glory forever. Amen. Uh, I'll also use the time for the Q&A to cover some other issues that I didn't get to. Um, So if you don't have any questions, I'm still going to cover some important stuff if you're still here.